Praise the Lord. If you have a Bible, if you would, please turn to Nehemiah. You can turn to chapter 6 for right now. We're not going to spend a lot of time in chapter 6. I'm actually headed towards chapter 8. And let's just pray. Father, I just ask that you'll make your word clear to all of us and then put a burning desire back in us, Lord, if we've lost it, to hear your word, to know your word, to want to know you through your word. And I thank you that you'll do that today in Jesus' name. So, you know, we've talked, Nehemiah has come back to Jerusalem in 445 B.C. with the third group of returning Jewish exiles that have come from Persia. And it would appear that his one purpose in coming there is just to get the wall rebuilt around Jerusalem. But as we'll see today, that wasn't his only purpose because he also wanted to bring spiritual revival to a depressed and reproached people. That was really his main goal to God's people. Getting the wall up was the goal, but he's really looking at it, reviving these people. That's what God had put in his heart. So he gets there. He's able to rally the people to begin building the wall. He tells them, he says, look, God's hand is on me. Let's build so we're no longer a reproach. And the people get excited and they say, let's build. And they get to building, but we talked immediately. They run into opposition, both external, we said, and internal. And we saw the external opposition happened in chapter four. And it took the form of psychological, mental attacks, however you want to say it, physical threats and discouragement. And those are three common enemies that we all face as Christians all the time. The devil is relentless. And then we moved on. Last week we talked about chapter 5 and the internal opposition that he faced in building that wall. And that comes when God's people are not seeking the welfare of others in a church. But they're selfishly just looking out for their own interest. He said, don't you fear God? Don't you know to these Jews that were oppressing their brothers? Don't you fear God? Don't you know that what you're doing is wrong? And he says, you know, you should be looking out for the poor, not oppressing them. These boys were redeemed. We redeemed them with our own money when we could. And now you're putting them right back into bondage, the ones that have been freed, your own brother and making slaves out of him. You shouldn't do that. And so we said, when we have the fear of God, it will help us to look out for the poor, the quote-unquote uncool people. Those that are burdened and seeking help, we will help them out. We will be the ones to do that. In other words, we'll show mercy. Those Jews weren't showing mercy to their fellow brothers. But we will show mercy like God does, knowing that one day we're going to want to receive mercy from the Lord. That'll help us operate in the fear of the Lord and to do what's right. But people that are critical, selfish, unconcerned about needs, taking advantage of other people and sowing strife are not helping to build up a church, but tearing it down. And so how did Nehemiah deal with that inner conflict? At one point, he just confronted the guilty. And they made things right there. They had a humble heart when he confronted them. They said, we'll make it like the year of Jubilee. We'll give them everything back. And all was well, and they just kept on building. And Nehemiah also showed by his own example, this is how you should live. This is how you build up each other. He said, I could have taken from these people. I had every right as a governor. The governors before me did. But he said, instead, I blessed them. Had meals at my house every day. I was blessing people. So he overcomes that external and internal opposition, and the building continues. So that is chapters 1 through 5. And in chapter 6... Nehemiah faces another and more strong opposition. He faces a strong conspiracy. So once 
Simbalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, they realized that a direct assault isn't going to work like they tried in chapter 4. They devise a plot to overthrow Nehemiah. A conspiracy is hatched to destroy him personally is what happens. So first they try to have meetings with him. They want to get him away from the work. They pick a spot that's halfway between Jerusalem and Samaria. Come meet us there. It would have taken him a day to get there, a day to get back, and however long they're going to have those meetings. He's like, I've got important things I'm doing here. I can't be coming and meeting with you and getting away from the work. And that went on for four times. So look in chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. It says, Now it came to pass when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, that Sembalat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I'm doing a great work, so I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Verse 4, yet they sent unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. Four times they do it. And finally, the fifth time, they send what it says is an open letter. They make it public, and they publicly attack his character, is what they do on the fifth time. They say his motives are not pure. They say, what you're doing, and we're going to make this known everywhere, is you're planning on rebelling against the king so that you can be king. Here it is, and starting at verse 5, Then sends Sabalat his servant unto me in like manner the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. Anybody could read it. Wherein was written, It is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause you build the wall. That's why you're building this wall, that you may be their king, according to these words. And you hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. And now he, they're saying, We're going to report it to the king. We're going to tell on you these words. They're saying, Come on now, let's take counsel together. And the only way he answered them is, he just told them, he says, I'm going to tell you, fellas, there's no truth in what you're saying. There's no truth at all. You're making it up in your hearts. And he just left it at that with them. That's the way he answered them. So he says, you're just trying to get us to quit. So look what it says in verse 9. For they all made us afraid, saying, their hands shall be weakened from the work that it not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. So when that didn't work, then they started bribing the prophets. Get the prophets. A prophet tries to get Nehemiah to come to the temple, which he shouldn't do. And it would assassinate his character again. Why are you in such fear, Nehemiah, if God's got his hand on you? And he said, if I did that, it would be sin, giving in to fear. Look in verses 12 and 13. It says, and lo, when this prophet calls for him to go into the temple, he says, lo, I perceived that God hadn't sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me, for Tobiah and Sembalat had hired him. And therefore was he hired that I should be afraid and do so and what? And sin that they might have a matter for an evil report that they might reproach me. And so we've said this all along. What was Nehemiah primarily? He was a man of prayer from day one. We've seen that in chapter one right on. That's how he dealt with things. And that's what we have here in verse 14. He just puts these men in the hands of the Lord. Look in verse 14, chapter 6. Verse 14, he says, My God, think thou upon Tobiah and Sambalat according to these their works, and on the prophetess 
Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets that would have put me in fear. He just says, just look on what they're doing, Lord. Look on their works, and you take care of them. And the next thing we read, though, interestingly enough, verse 15 tells us what? That the wall is finished, and it's finished in 52 days. Look at verse 15. So the wall was finished in the 25th day of the month, Elui, in 52 days. That was an amazing feat. And the fact that it got done, and it got done that quickly, and all of their attempts to stop the building of the wall, it discouraged his enemies. That's what we read if you go on and read the rest of that chapter. And they saw God's hand was in it. And so we're not going to go through chapter 7, but in chapter 7, what happens there is Nehemiah comes up with a plan for guarding the walls and repopulating the city. And so most of that chapter consists of the genealogies of the returning Jews. And he's conducting a census. He wants to know, how many people here do I have to deal with that could come into this city? And the reason is, is there is hardly anybody living in Jerusalem at this time. Hardly anybody's there. So just look at one verse. Look in verse 4. Chapter 7, verse 4. It says, now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein, and the houses were not builded. He's taken this census. This is what chapter 7 is mainly all about. He's going to guard the gates. He sets his brother up to do that because he says he's a godly, responsible man, somebody I can trust. I'm going to put him in charge of that. And then he takes this census. He finds out i got 42,000-plus people. He's wanting to know how many of these people. He's going to select certain ones. If you go ahead and read chapter 11, that's where it actually takes place. And he has certain ones move. They're all living outside the city in rural areas. He has them move from there into the city. they got to get people back in this city. That's what it's all about, and that's what he does. So the wall gets finished. But chapter 7, the wall's finished in the sixth month. What was the sixth month? It was late summer. It was our August would have been the sixth month. And the next month, the seventh month, it was the beginning of the year for Israel. It was our January. But for them, it was about right now, October. That's when their calendar year began. That's when their new year began. So the wall's finished, the city's secure, and it's a new year. They just happened to finish that wall right about when the new year began. And now, because that wall's done, the people are able to gather together. They're able to assemble together. And so on New Year's Day, they all get together on the equivalent of Times Square. But the thing is, they're not coming there to watch the ball drop. No, no. They're coming there to hear the Word of God. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So... Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And it says there, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood which they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Aniah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Maaziah on his right hand. And on his left hand was Padiah, and Mishael, and Malchiah, and Hashem, and Hashbadena, 
Zechariah, and Meshalom. I'd like to see you all do that. I don't know that I did it 100% right, but it was close enough for us, wasn't it? This is Shelbyville. Praise the Lord. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen. Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, and Bani, and Sherebiah, and Jamin, and Akab, and Shabethai, and Hodajai, and Maasiah, and Kalaita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, got them quiet, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy. Look, you don't have to be upset, neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount. And fetch olive branches, and pine branches, and myrtle branches, and palm branches, and branches of thick trees to make booths, as it is written. And so the people went forth, and brought them, and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the street of the water gate, and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. And also day by day from the first day unto the last day, he read in the book of the law of God and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according to the manner. Wow, that's a mouthful right there. It really was. <laughs> but have you ever wondered why churches, especially Protestant churches, give priority to teaching and preaching of the Word of God? Why does our church major on preaching and teaching the Word? Because obviously it takes up the majority of our service, doesn't it? It takes up at least half of it. Let me ask you a question. Is it just a preference we have? Is it just a preference, a matter of our church culture? Is it just a, a matter of culture? Or is it a biblical mandate? And I believe it's a biblical mandate. So the importance of the teaching and hearing of the Word of God is throughout the Old and New Testament. You know, whenever, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, I'll come back to it. Whenever there has been a major revival, whether you look at the Bible and the Old Testament, all the way up to our present day, a true revival. I'm not talking about this stuff with dogs barking. That's not a revival. 
uh, true revivals where people are truly saved and the Spirit of God is moving, it's always accompanied by the preaching of the Word. Always brought back to that. And we have that in 2 Chronicles 17. Asa, a good king, he's going to get Israel back on track. And what does he do? He has the Levites. He sends them out into these cities, teaching them the Word, the law, the Torah. They didn't have the whole Bible then. The boring first five books of the Old Testament. I don't think they're boring, but some people do. That's what he did. And you have Josiah comes along. Let me get back to Asa, though. It says when he did that, the people had a fear of God, and their neighbors had a fear of them because they knew God was with them. And you go on to chapter 35, and Josiah, his, he came after Manasseh, the most wicked king you ever had. He desecrated the temple, and some guys cleaning up the temple, they just happened to find the book. And so they bring it to him, and he starts having it read to him. And what does it say Josiah did? He wasn't doing this before. So you think the word's not that important? It says he realized, I and our people are in great trouble. It says he rent his clothes once he heard the word. <laughs> We're in deep trouble. God's wrath is on us. We need to do something about this. And then he had that law read in the ears of all the people. And he made them say, we are all going to walk in it. Now, all of them did under threat of death, but it wasn't in all their hearts. Not like his. Because as soon as he was dead, they backslid. But when we come to the New Testament, whenever Paul came into a city, he would teach in the synagogue. And what would he teach? He would teach the word, is what he did. So like Berea. He teaches there and he's bringing to them things they had not heard before about Jesus Christ and what salvation was and how all this is fulfilled. And it says when he's gone, it says every day, daily, they searched the scriptures to see if what he said was true. So like, we don't care about your opinions, your philosophy. We want to see if what you're saying, Mr. Paul, is in the scriptures. And listen to this. This is all in the book of Acts. When Paul came to Corinth, it says there, you know what he did? For the year and a half when he came to Corinth and started that church, the Apostle Paul, could you imagine him being your teacher? Ain't there be any complaints there? A year and a half, it says he continued there a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. That's where the emphasis was. A year and a half. That's Paul doing missions. That's what he did at Ephesus. A little while later, it says there, he continued there a space of two years he stayed there so that all they that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And it goes on. In Acts 28, the last chapter of the book of Acts, they come to him and it says, when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging to whom he expounded. He took the word and opened it up explained it, expounded, and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses, out of the law of Moses and the prophets, out of the prophets. And he taught them, it says, from morning until evening. How many of us could sit that long? Morning until evening, he sat there and taught them out of the Old Testament. Expounding, it says. He would read a portion of Scripture and not run off. No, he would explain, this is what this means. That's what it's all about. It's a priority in the church. 
Paul's last exhortation to Timothy was preach the word. We've heard this many times. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come, and it's here, when they will not endure sound doctrine. And I'm saying sound doctrine has got to be at the heart of any solid church. And that is what we have here in Nehemiah chapter 8. This is a turning point for God's people right here. After this, they become the people of the book. That's what they become. Everything they did was in response to the word. So what about God's word? How important is it? I'm not telling you all something you don't know, but that is how we know who the true and living God is. How else would we know him, understand his ways and what he requires? Now look, we're not into what they call bibliolatry. You know, we don't worship the book, and sometimes you can be accused of that, right? But I will say this, we give respect and honor to what he's given us. We'll see that here in Nehemiah. This is divine revelation. This is unlike any other book. This is just no ordinary book. <laughs> divine revelation. You know, God moved all men to write, and he said, by these words, this is how you're going to know me. No other way. That's how you'll know me. And so the word becomes central to our understanding and knowledge of, like I said, the true and living God. It's a word from him. And so think about this. I'm going to illustrate this, what I'm saying. Listen to what I'm saying. So when the two disciples, they're walking on the road to Emmaus. How did Jesus reveal himself to them? He's walking right there along with him. So somebody says, I want to know God. I want to come to a deeper knowledge of him. Let me tell you how you're going to do that. You're going to do that by prayerfully reading this word. That's how you're going to come to a deeper knowledge of him and how to know him. Because he's walking with them and they're saying, we don't know about these reports about the resurrection. And listen to what Jesus said to them. He says, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And you know what he did? It says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded. There's that word again. He opened up and explained the scriptures. He expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How did Jesus reveal himself to these men? Through the scriptures. What we do every day week. And so they get to the house. Now listen, this is what we need to see. They get to the house and they break bread together. And what happened next? Here's what it says. And it came to pass as Jesus, he sat at meat with them. He took bread and blessed it and break and gave it to them. And when he did that, it says their eyes were opened. So now they physically see that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. They couldn't see that before. Their eyes were not open. God had blinded their eyes to that. It says their eyes were open, and it says, and they knew him. As soon as that happened, he vanished out of their sight. That's interesting, isn't it? He vanished out of their sight as soon as that happened. And they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and listen and while he opened to us the scriptures that's what they're talking about they're not talking about that they'd seen him the physical attributes of him they saw is it 
They're saying our hearts burned when he revealed himself to us through the scriptures. That's how God reveals himself to us. So seeing him literally wasn't that important. He vanished as soon as they saw him and recognized who he was and knew who he was. But their knowledge of him came through the word. And that's what we're going to look at today in Nehemiah 8. So I'd like to look at three things today. The first thing is the people's desire for the word. We're going to look at that first. Secondly, we're going to look at how the word was delivered. And third, we're going to look at the people's response. And so first we see here the people's desire for the word. And look in verse 1, Nehemiah 8.1, it says, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. First of all, where did the people gather? You know, it's interesting. Why didn't they gather at the temple? They didn't gather there. They didn't gather around the altar. Where did they gather? Look what it says there in verse 1. Into the street that was before the water gate. That's a public area is where they gathered to hear the word. In the street. And that's where God's word is going forth. It shouldn't just be here. It's here. It's fine. But it should also go out into the street. In Acts 17, Paul's in Athens. And he's got nothing to do. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come around. And he's just kind of walking around. And listen to what it says. And while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. And therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons. And look what it says next. And in the market daily with them that met him. Paul brought that word the word, his preaching, into the market, it says, with them that met him. That means them that just happened to be there. He goes into that market, and anyone that happened to be there that would talk to him, he's expounding the word. In the streets is the point we're trying to make here. The pulpit is just not for the temple, but it's for the streets. It's for the markets. And where's the next place he goes after that? After people start, the buzz is going around. Listen to what this guy's preaching here. Probably maybe saw a few people get saved. They take him to Mars Hill. That's not the temple. But he sets the pulpit up there in their little public forum where they want to hear any kind of philosophy going on. No, he takes advantage of that and preaches to that crowd. Hey, they didn't all like it either. Most of them didn't. Most of them mocked him or said, we'll hear you another time. It just says a few of them believed. And that's the way it works. But look what it says here at the beginning. It says, and all the people. Now that is a lot of people, roughly 50,000 people. Think of that, all gathering in the streets by the water gate. Different people, different homes, different occupations, different likes and different dislikes. And But what does it say about them? And you can read right past this pretty easily. All these different people, different backgrounds, all the people gathered themselves together. And how did they gather themselves together? What does it say there? As one man. <laughs> United, though, with one purpose. Didn't they have one purpose? You got men, you have women, and you have children all gathered together as one man. Look what it says in verse 2. Ezra the priest, he brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women. And here's how we know it's all that could hear with understanding. That means if a five-year-old could understand what was being said, they were there. They weren't sitting at home coloring. They were there. All united with an expectation to hear God's word. 
You know why? Because they knew God was at work in their midst. And they think, hey, he's got a word for us. We want to hear it. We want to hear his voice. They're excited. There's expectation there. Gathered in the street. You imagine 50,000 people gathered in the street. I guarantee you, there's an excitement when a crowd comes together like that and a buzz about them. Look, I've seen people do it for a baseball game, a stupid baseball game. You know, I've been to Wrigley Field in Chicago, and before the game, isn't it not right, that the streets around Wrigley Field are packed with people. And they're just sitting around having a good time, talking, laughing, and there's this excitement. They're all excited. They're going to go see the Cubs. And it used to be they're going to go see the Cubs lose. But things have changed, and now they're probably going to make the World Series, all right? But, you know, it's just like here. You got rich and poor out in those streets talking to each other in Chicago. You got old and young, fat and skinny. You got all kinds. They're united around one thing, the Cubs, right? But the people in Jerusalem, they're not excited about sports. Uh -uh. Guess what? They are excited about hearing the word. And there is an air of expectation. And look how we know that. They're demanding of Ezra. Look what it says in verse 1. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe. Look what they said. To bring the book of the law of Moses. Bring the book, they're telling him. Man, we're all here. We're waiting. Ezra, come on. Bring the book. They have a desire to learn God's word, to hear a word from God. And I mean, I like the way a guy likened it. He said it was probably like a rock concert, you know, where they're chanting for the group to come out. Except this time, the crowd's getting together. They got this pulpit they've built. And they're waiting, and they're probably, we want Ezra. We want Ezra. Now, excitement's building. They want to hear the word. Come on out. That's what they tell him. Bring the book. And listen, whenever there has been a revival in the church, God has worked that kind of expectation in people. You know, it would do all of us good to read some church history. Really would. When you read about George Whitfield came over here from England and started preaching. He would preach to crowds in cities, out in the country. He would use a hill to magnify his voice. He preached to literal crowds. Can you imagine that here in America? 10 to 20,000 people. They measured his voice. It could go as far as two miles away. He could be heard. 10 to 20,000 people would gather to hear the word of God being preached. And literally, word would get out that Whitfield had come to town. And when that word got out, I mean, it spread into the countryside. And farmers would just leave their mules or donkeys or whatever they were doing, plow on that field, just leave them there. People leave their houses. They literally would just all come and gather. I mean, there weren't that many people in the cities where he's preaching, generally. And huge crowds would come, waiting to hear the word of God. Now that is expectation, and that's a work that God does. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones would pack out Westminster Chapel in England because he had an anointed word from the Lord. I've heard him on tape many times. He could hear his sermons for free. I highly recommend it. Listening to it on tape is nothing like the energy and the presence of God that was in that chapel when he preached. They said it was like God was speaking to us directly. And that's what happens. And that expectation could only happen when God works it in the hearts of men and women. It's the way it is. It's a sovereign move of God to make people long to hear his word. And I'm going to say it's dying now. We had that in America. We've had it at different times. It is dying out now. Preaching of the word of God, taking the Bible and opening up its meaning, it is not there like it used to be. No longer interests people. 
at least not in America. One time I heard Henry Blackaby say he had gone over to Korea. He said that, it, I believe it was a stadium, that place was packed. Those people were just sitting on the edge of the seat waiting to hear him preach a word. He's like, it was just unreal. People hungering. And he says he preached on the fear of God and he said thousands of people drop on their knees weeping from hearing him preach that. <laughs> and I mean, he wasn't preaching any different there than he does here, but God's hand came on him because those people had an expectation and a hunger that God had worked in them. So why are they all so hungry? These different ones. Because they weren't gospel saturated like we are here. You know, the people in Jerusalem were reading here in Nehemiah, they probably hadn't heard the word in years. No word in Korea where Blackaby was. And in Whitfield's day, the common man, your common man was denied knowing the truth of the new birth. The scriptures were withheld from them. And so they had a hunger and a desire for truth. And God had done a work in fertile hearts. And that's when a heart will cry out, bring the book. That's what they're telling Nehemiah. Bring that book. We want to hear. We can't wait to hear. You know, Paul goes to Troas and begins preaching. And it says in Acts, he goes on preaching until midnight. And the saints there were hungry. That is a long time. On the Sabbath day or Sunday, whatever, first day of the week, preaching until midnight. I think I could sit there and listen to him for hours preach. I really do. And we know the story about old poor Eutychus. He listened until he fell, it says, into a deep sleep, and he fell three stories to his death. Now, that's a hunger for the word. <laughs> Isn't it really? You know, this is interesting. You know what the name Eutychus means? Fortunate. And he was fortunate. You know why? Because he fell to his death, and Paul was there to raise him up. <laughs> I'd say he was fortunate. Praise God. We're saying how long? We're saying these people would come. Paul's preaching all day. We talked several times about that in the book of Acts where he's preaching all day long and people are there listening. All right. Well, how long did Ezra read from the law? 50,000 people. How long did they stand there and listen? Look in verse 3. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate. From how long? From the morning until midday. About five to six hours it says, before the men and the women and those that could understand. And look what it says at the end of verse 3. And the ears of all the people were what? Attentive. Attentive for the whole five to six hours. They weren't falling asleep. They weren't dozing. They weren't thinking about work tomorrow. It's saying they're listening right there. The ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. Now well, that's desire for the truth. It is. Psalm 19, this is what it was like for them. Psalm 19, it says, the word is sweeter than honey. That's as sweet as it would get, right? More to be desired than gold. We used to sing that song. I love that song. Psalm 19 is a great song. In Psalm 119, verse 161, it says, as princes have persecuted me without a cause, he says, but my heart, the psalmist says, stands in awe of thy word. I rejoice at thy word as one that finds great spoil. Now look, I'm not smart enough to dovetail messages. I'm really not. I don't sit there and plan out, well, I'm going to teach Mark 4, and it's going to be on the sower and the seed and the word. And then Nehemiah 8, I know that's coming next. We'll just tie them in together. I'm not that smart. Or really, and you all say, we know. Well, I'm not. This is just the way it's falling out. But isn't that what we were talking about Wednesday? 
So let me ask, the psalmist says he stands in awe of the word. Do we? Do we stand in awe of that word? Do we rejoice to hear the word as one finds treasure? I think hearing the word, loving the word, reading the word is an acquired taste. The more you do it, the more you're going to like it. It's like a good cup of coffee. I didn't like coffee when I first started drinking. I wasn't saved, and I had a midnight to eight job, and that's the only way I could stay awake. I hadn't drank coffee for 20 years of my life, but I'll tell you what, I acquired a taste, and I love coffee. I like Brett's coffee. I like good coffee. But that's the way it is with the Word. The more you read it, the more God speaks to you, the more you'll want it. And the devil's going to do his best to keep us away from it. And let me just throw this in here. Do you know why we don't send our children somewhere else when the Word is preached? We're partially getting it out of here in Nehemiah, right? says they had he had everybody gathered there 50,000 people were gathered and all that could understand can you understand what I'm saying no you <laughs> can you understand what I, see he shook his head young man understands every word I'm saying and guess what though it, <laughs> he's looking around me talking about brother bagger <laughs> oh, you're all right at least you shook your head, yeah. but it didn't start with Ezra and Nehemiah you know where it started it started in Deuteronomy Turn back, if you would, put something there. I want you to see this. Turn back to Deuteronomy 31. Verses 11 to 13. Beginning in verse 11, it says, When all Israel has come to appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and who? Children. And thy stranger that is within thy gates, why? That they may hear, and that they may learn and fear the Lord your God, and observe to do all the words of this law. And look at verse 13. And that their children, which have not known anything, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land, whither you go over Jordan to possess it. I think a five-year-old can pick up a whole lot more than you might think. And especially if you're already teaching them at home, which we should be doing, all of us. Amen? I'm talking to myself, too. So what makes the difference, though? What makes the difference in a people that desire to hear the word and those that yawn? I'm talking about from the preacher's side and the hearer's side. I think it's prayerful expectation. That makes all the difference in the world. It really does. For both the listener and the preacher. Pray for the preacher. Pray for your own heart. And God will probably feed you. He will. And I've noticed, you know, not so much here. Well, I've gone into prison and I haven't prayed like I wished I had because there's strong spirits operating there. I notice a difference in how the word goes forth and is received. So I'm saying it works both ways. The preacher's got to be prayed up and the people have to be prayed up. That's what makes the difference. So if you go back to, to Nehemiah 8, I want to look at my second point here, and that is how the word was delivered. And so we see there in verse 4 that you have Ezra, and it gives 13 names. It says they stood upon a pulpit of wood that was built. And you know what that was? You got right in the center of all of that they had built and constructed. It's this wooden structure that they could stand on that was up high. And so right in the front of everybody, just like we have here. We don't have stained glass windows. We don't have all this other stuff. What is the center of our church? Everything is pointed towards the pulpit and the word. That's the way it was there, right? And look at the reverence when they do that. He takes that pulpit and they're standing there to read the word. And look at the reverence the people give. 
Beginning in verse 5, it says, And Ezra, he opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, it says, all the people stood up. So he's standing on this pulpit, elevated so they could see and hear him. And it says he took the book. It would have been a scroll. But he opened it up in the sight of all the people. And now why are they all standing up? Because of Ezra? He's not a rock concert guy. Uh-uh. They're standing up. Why? Because they recognize the authority of the word of God. And out of respect for it is why they're standing up. They're saying, this Bible, this word, this book has got authority over our lives. It's the revelation from the living God. And that's why they're standing up. You know, there's a minister, I think I've talked about him before, Russell Moore. Came out of Southern Seminary. I've heard him preach many times there. And every time before he reads, like I read Ezra 8, he has the congregation stand up. And he'll say, I'll have you stand up out of respect for the word of God. And when he's done reading, they all sit down. Now, I don't think ever you have to do that, but I'm saying there's nothing wrong with that, is there? We see that done here. I think that does give you a respect. But look what happens here. He gives a blessing over the people, a benediction. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Verse 6, with lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I'm sure he said a prayer like, we thank you and bless you. You are a great and mighty God. And we acknowledge your great word and law that you have so graciously blessed us with. We're undeserving people. And all the people say, amen, twice, amen, amen. And then it says they did what when they did that? He's holding this law up before them. He's thanking and saying the great God which has blessed us, and all the people say amen, and then it says they raise their hands. Why did they do that? What is raising hands all about? Because they're saying, we are totally dependent on you, Lord, and we need your help. And it's going to come through this word we're about to hear. Psalm 28 says, hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands to your most holy place. So they're raising their hands and they're saying, God, speak to us. Speak to me. We sang the song today. Here's my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench. That's what they're doing. Lifting their hands up. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Here's my cup. Fill it up and make me whole. And what's the next thing it says they did there in verse 6? It says they bowed their faces to the ground in adoration and worship. And we need to see that worship doesn't stop when the music stops. Worship is in hearing the word of God. That's what they're doing here. They're worshiping God for his word that he's going to give them. It's an act of worship. And I think if we would do that more and look at hearing the word as an act of worship, that God would open our understanding more than he does. Because that is what happened to these 50,000 people in Jerusalem, right? When the book was read and they worshiped God and got before him and they're eagerly expecting him, what happens? It says he taught them, gave them understanding. Look in verse 7. At the end of verse 7, it says, And the Levites caused the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. It was read distinctly. That means it was read clearly to the people. 
and gave the sense. That's saying they explained it. They opened it up like Jesus did to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Opened up and explained, these are what these verses mean. And gave the sense so they could grasp the meaning. And that's what is called expository preaching. You take a text of scripture, open up its meaning, and give the application for today. That's what I attempt to do every time I preach. I'm not getting my subject or whatever else from somewhere else. I'm getting what I'm preaching about from the text itself. It's God's word. I have no authority. My opinion doesn't matter. So we're looking at what does God's word say? That's where the authority comes from, doesn't it? It does. You're not under me, so to speak. You're under God's word to obey it. And if it comes through me, then you're responsible for what you hear. Jesus said, you could take my words lightly if you want to. That's the same with everyone here. But he says, my words are one day going to be what judge you, the word of God. And so that's where we need to give respect and reverence to it. And that's what the Levites and Nehemiah were doing. And when that happens, you'll get a response. That's my third point, the people's response. And look what the response is in verse 9. And Nehemiah, which is Tirshatha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. Because here was the response. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. They wept when they heard the law read and explained. Why? Because the word of God, there was an anointing there. It was having an impact on them. And listen, that's not common. How many meetings have we been to where you see, or we've even had here, where people are weeping over it? Because only the Spirit of God can produce that effect. You know, what do they have going on here? There's no music being played. You know, you watch a movie sometimes. If you would just shut off the sound, what gets you all worked up and in tears over some scene? You turn the music off, it wouldn't have any impact on you like that. Music has an impact, and there's no impact of music going on here. That's not why these people are weeping. They're weeping because of the anointing God's Spirit. And the word that was preached, it was Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, the Law of Moses. But what they're hearing from that, though, God's anointing that, and they're hearing, this is how you're supposed to be as my people. Here are the promises that I've given you. And they're realizing, that's what God intended us to be, and I look at myself and see what I am and what we've lost, and it caused them to weep. Brought them to tears. And I was at a revival conference at the Billy Graham Center in Asheville. It's been a few years back now. But there was a godly, old holiness preacher who was there. And he was speaking on the night service on the greatness of God. From the word about his holiness, his majesty, and his awesome presence. And he talked about how we had all fallen short. Everyone in that room of giving him the glory and dedication he deserved. And there was a hush that only the Spirit of God could produce came over that entire crowd. Probably a thousand people that were there. A holy hush. And for me, I'm sitting there and I'm not a weeper. I'm not an emotional type person. But the Spirit of God came on me. I couldn't help but weep. I had a puddle down beneath my face. Because God was dealing with me along with everyone else in that room that was there for the most part. But that's not typically what happens, right? Because only God can really truly produce that. That's nothing you're going to work up. But the word preached in the presence of God will give you that. And listen, that was a proper response for these people initially to weep over their sins 
And we should grieve over our sins when we do. But here's the thing. Here's what Nehemiah had to deal with. We shouldn't linger in them. So you get convicted. You realize you've fallen short. You know you're not where to be. Get before the Lord and repent. And then you have to accept the forgiveness that he gives us. Because after repentance, it's time to rejoice. And that's what we have in verses 10 through 12. And Nehemiah said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send the portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. He says, For this day is holy unto our Lord. He says, Don't you be sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy. Neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth. Why? Because they had understood the words that had been declared unto them. So you think about it. The prodigal son, he's brought to his senses. He humbly comes to his father, doesn't he? From the far country and confesses his sins. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be thy son. But let me ask you, did the father make him linger in his sorrow? Because the immediate next verse says this, But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. That's God's reaction if you've repented. You don't have to wallow in that when you've truly repented and made things right. He's going to kill the fatted calf. That's the principle in Scripture. These people had been chastised. They'd been brought into captivity. God, though, had turned their hearts back to Him. That's why they're back. And brought them back like He's done some here. You have to wallow in the past that you got away from the Lord. He's brought you back. You're no longer a reproach. No longer have to hang your heads. That's what He's telling these people here in Nehemiah. You don't have to hang your heads. You realize you've done wrong, but you're wanting to do what's right. Grieve over the past, but rejoice in the future God has for you. That's the whole purpose of all of this. That's what he's telling them. He's blessed you. His hand has been upon you. Look at this wall that he's enabled you to finish. No one thought it could be done. You were mocked by your enemies. And yet here it is. Oh, yeah. It's time to rejoice. And make sure you help out the ones that don't have a lot. Give them some food, too. Let everybody rejoice. This is a party we should all be brought into, right? But you know what? One thing I think is the neatest thing of all. Look in verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth. And here is why they are the most happy. Because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. That's really what matters, isn't it? Isn't it the fact the walls are up? We have a nice church here. Isn't it the fact... You know, we got new carpeting, whatever. The outside's painted. Everything's great, right? The pulpit's not pulling over. We're all dressed night and our teeth are brushed and we got jobs. But what is the most important thing for us to rejoice about? We understand the word. I'm telling you, that is the most important thing we'll ever have. That is it. They understand and have obedient hearts. And I'm saying when that's the case in your life, when you understand the word and you have a willingness to obey, that is where joy comes in. It does. And so they came back for more. Look in verse 13. And on the second day, we're gathered together. Now here you don't have all the people. You just, they had to go back home. But you got the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests, the Levites, unto Ezra and the scribe. They want more. Even to understand, it says, the words of the law. And you know what they understood? What was read to them? They said there's a feast. The feast of booze. 
Nobody's been celebrating that. And they immediately, because this was their heart, they heard the word, understood it, and they obeyed. And you go on and read, we're not going to read it again, but you go on and it says they went out. As soon as they heard that word, they gathered branches from every kind of tree and every place, right? And booths were constructed all over Jerusalem, if you go on to read it, on top of houses, out in the street, near the temple, booths everywhere. It would have been a sight to behold. That's what it said. They obeyed like the children of Israel hadn't obeyed for years. Look at verse 17. And all the congregation of them that were come out of the captivity made booths, all of them, and sat under the booths. Look what it says. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. Nobody had done it but them. And that's like us. Does someone else have to obey before we'll obey? We can obey because look what the result is when you obey what God clearly shows you. Look at the end of verse 17. And there was very great gladness. I'm saying obedience to the word of God is what brings true joy. Very great gladness. And Jesus says the same thing in the New Testament. He promises that if we obey him, so you want to experience God's love, you want to have the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ in you, you want that? You know how it comes? Obedience. He says it. John 15, verses 10 to 11. He says, if you keep my commandments, obey me. He says, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And he said, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy, Jesus says that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. What a promise. Let that sink in. I mean, that is better than a new car, a new boat, a new job, or a new house, isn't it? It should be for us if you're God's child. By our obedience to our Lord, we can experience His joy. Let me read it again. He says, Jesus, our Lord, says, If you keep my commandments... You shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And he said, these things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Well, that's something to take home. Put it in the old proverbial pipe and smoke it. Meditate on it in your swing, if you like that better, for anti-pipes, which I am. Praise God. Let me ask you, what place does the Word of God, we have to ask ourselves, what place does the Word of God have in our lives? And are we hungry? Are we truly hungry for the Word? You know, does your heart say, Ezra, bring the book. Bring it out. Let me hear it. Let me understand it. Let me be willing. God, give me a willing heart to obey it. That I can know your love and joy. So let's say, does your heart let me finish with this. Does your heart cry out like the song of old? Sing them over again to me. Wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see. Wonderful words of life. Word of life and beauty. Teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words. Wonderful words. Wonderful words of life. And the second verse says, Christ the blessed one gives to all. Wonderful words of life. Listen well to the loving call, wonderful words of life, all the wondrous story showing us his glory. Beautiful words, wonderful words, 
wonderful words of life. Those are the kind of hymns we should be singing. Great songs, right? So let's just determine, like Israel was from this point out, that we are going to be people of the book. As we said Wednesday, people that embrace the word with honest and good hearts, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Father, I just ask that you'll make us a people that prayerfully and in a spirit of worship approach the hearing and reading of your word. And I just ask also, Lord, that you'll help us never to lose sight of the fact that you have ordained preaching as the means to know you and to obey you, that we'll never lose sight of that, Lord. And I just ask also, Father, that there be never a famine of your word in this church. That you'll always speak to us, Lord. I just thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen.